1: I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land.
2: Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terence Siegel. A podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the past seven days and how we got here. On today's
3: episode! you are tempted to be filled with hatred and distrust of the injustice of such an act. I
2: want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land.
0: At the time of recording, it's been almost two weeks since the murder of George Floyd, an unarmed African American who was killed in police custody after being arrested for trying to use a fake $20 bill. Since the footage of his death exploded across social media, there have been protests across 140 US cities, and curfews introduced in 25 cities. There's been violent clashes between police and protesters, especially in New York, but also in the nation's capital, as a group of riot police officers cleared away peaceful protesters to make way for President Trump to walk across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church for what can only really be described as a photo op. What are your
1: thoughts right now? We have a great country, that's my thoughts.
0: But I think there's been enough coverage of the violence. The vast majority of protesters have been protesting peacefully. And there's also been plenty of moments of police officers sympathizing with protesters, apologizing to them, and taking a knee.
4: So listen, I'm just telling you, these cops love you.
5: That cop
2: over here
4: hugs people, so you tell us what you need to do.
0: But I think this protester might have said it best, what's happening across the country. He's standing in front of a line of riot police. They're not shoulder to shoulder. There's maybe a dozen spaced across the road they're blocking, and no one's moving or advancing. They kind of look like statues. One of them has the shield and his helmet up, watching the protester intently and nodding along as he delivers a speech.
4: But
5: the ones that's doing wrong, has been long, it's been years. My wife grandfather was killed by a cop my uncle. There are some bad cops that make some of y'all that do right look bad. It's not all of y'all. Y'all keep your head up. So when they say police, it's the ones that's crooked. The people out there doing crime of any color that mess it up for us that want to live a peaceful life. It ain't just the police that trigger this everybody. You got to stand in the middle.
0: He says it kind of quickly as he's getting pumped up. But he says, it's not just the police that trigger this. It's everybody. This groundswell of anger and frustration and sorrow isn't just about one bad cop. It's not even about police brutality itself. It's about systems in the US that have been broken for hundreds of years. It's about systems that were built broken, that were built unfair, and unjust, and divisive. I know that systemic racism is kind of the buzzword of this week, but in all of the emotion of the moment, it's easy to lose sight of what all of this is really about. And that's the fact that racism has been a part of the systems of America since the birth of the country. Now obviously, I'm not going to get into every way in which racism permeates America in 20 minutes, but I do want to look at one particular thing. Something that might seem kind of small, but in many ways it's actually the foundation of all of the injustice and inequality that persists to today. Because after the abolition of slavery, America had a choice, and it chose wrong. So, without further ado, to understand how we got here, to two weeks of protests across 140 cities, to the fear and exclusion that African Americans feel every day, We need to go back to 1883. It was 18 years since the end of the Civil War, and the abolition of slavery, and 15 years since the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which said that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States, And no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. But despite these amendments, African Americans were finding it impossible to get the one thing that could actually emancipate them. Property. Even if it wasn't state law, they were facing private discrimination everywhere. Not only in the housing market, but in hotels, and trains, and all sorts of public spaces. This led African Americans to file a series of lawsuits, which worked their way up to the Supreme Court. And this was the moment that would determine what followed in the next century. White Americans, both Northerners and Southerners, had been really resistant to allowing the newly freed slaves to actually integrate into the community. And so in the 1860s and 70s, Congress had passed a series of laws trying to force them to play ball. It outlawed things like the Black Codes, which were state laws that basically tried to reinforce slavery under a different name, and it passed the Civil Rights Acts of 1866 and 1875, which made discrimination by businesses or in public areas illegal. These two forces, a Reconstruction Congress and its very reluctant white citizens, would come to a head in 1883 in the Supreme Court, and the court, like it's done so many times since, would make the wrong decision. The court found that the Civil Rights Acts of 1866 and 1875 were actually unconstitutional. And this is how they did that. They looked at the 14th Amendment, which as I said before, says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And it zeroed in on that word, state. the court opinion published, they write out that section of the 14th Amendment, and then underneath it they write, it is the state action of a particular character that is prohibited. Individual invasion of individual rights is not the subject matter of that amendment. In other words, it's okay for African Americans to face any kind of discrimination. To be denied housing, to be excluded from hotels, from restaurants, from train cars, all of this is okay. Just as long as there isn't an actual law on the books sanctioning the discrimination. Because then Congress could jump in and say, stop that, States, force a change. But if it's just happening on its own because white Americans are racist, well then that's an individual invasion of individual rights. And that's not the subject matter of the 14th Amendment. It's this ruling that allowed segregation to happen for another century. And things would get worse before they got better.
5: Time have came, and we've often rewound the clock
6: Since the Puritans got the shock When they landed on Plymouth Rock Rock, they try to of landing on Plymouth, Rock,
5: Plymouth Rock would land, land. In, olden days, In 1934,
0: America was suffering badly from the Great Depression and a huge housing shortage. To fix this, President Roosevelt started introducing a series of reforms called the New Deal that would vastly expand government aid programs. One of these programs was called the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA. And its job was to get Americans building houses and buying houses by backing loans and mortgages to developers and home buyers.
2: 1928 was a good building year. Almost $3 billion worth of new residential construction saw the light of day. But in 1929, even before the Depression became general, building dropped off to slightly under two billion. Year after year, throughout the Depression, this decline continued. Each succeeding drop, meaning thousands more men laid off in the building and allied industries. Until in 1934, all of the new homes built in the United States were worth only 227 million dollars. But due to the stimulation of the National Housing Act, 1935 presents a different picture. From every section of the country come reports of vastly increased building activity. Now in these pictures we show you a few of the thousands of houses of all types that are currently under construction as a result of this building boom. This tidal wave of new construction is an important contribution to the economic rebuilding of America. Homeownership is the basis of a happy, contented family life. And now, through the use of a National Housing Act insured mortgage is brought within the reach of all citizens on a monthly payment plan no greater than rent.
0: But actually not all citizens. This boom, all these new housing projects, would only be for white citizens. It literally was written in the 1936 FHA Underwriting Manual, which would be given to FHA's local agencies, quote, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that property shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. A change in social or racial occupancy generally leads to instability and a reduction in value. In other words, don't sell homes or offer mortgages to African-Americans in these new developments. The FHA literally drew lines around the country, separating valuable, quote, white areas and uninsurable, quote, black areas. This process was called redlining. So if it seems like a coincidence that today wealthy American suburbs are mostly white and a lot of poor urban areas are mostly black, it's not. When the government started building up these suburbs, it refused to let African Americans live there. Richard Rothstein, the author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, talked to Terry Gross about this on Fresh Air.
4: So, so what was the Federal Housing Authority's justification for excluding African-Americans from buying homes in newly built suburbs?
1: The Federal Housing Administration's justification was that if African-Americans bought homes in these suburbs, or even if they bought homes near these suburbs, the property values of the homes that they were insuring, the white homes that they were insuring, would decline. And therefore, their loans would be at risk. There was no basis for this claim on the part of the Federal Housing Administration. In fact, when African Americans tried to buy homes in all white neighborhoods or in mostly white neighborhoods, property values rose because African Americans were more willing to pay pay more for properties than whites were simply because their housing supply was so restricted and they had so many fewer choices. So the rationale that the Federal Housing Administration used was never based on any kind of study. It was never based on any reality. Studies showed that property values, as I said, uh, increased when African Americans moved into white neighborhoods. But nonetheless, the Federal Housing Administration maintained this rationale for 30 or 40 years.
0: 30 or 40 years later, the rationale would finally start falling apart. But it would take so much to start to undo this.
2: All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. (laughs) Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. And I've looked over, and I've seen the Promised Land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the Promised Land.
0: The Promised Land. Dr. King gave that speech on April 3rd, 1968. The next day, presidential primary candidate Robert Kennedy was on a train to Indianapolis to a campaign rally in one of the city's African-American ghettos. On the train ride over, he scrapped the speech his aides had prepared and started scribbling notes for a new one.
3: Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. (laughs) Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. What we need in the United States is not division, What we need in the United States is not hatred, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another, feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black.
5: It was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King a week before the bill passed that really provided the impetus to do it because all of a sudden a lot of people who were in opposition began to recognize, you know, this is a real problem. You know, I certainly remember as a youngster lots of conversations where the adults were talking about prejudice and why they couldn't live in one area versus another area. But I also remember, as a teenager, being excited when the Fair Housing Act was passed.
0: That was Ben Carson, former Secretary for Housing and Urban Development. A week after Dr. King's death, the American government under Lyndon Johnson took its first meaningful step to try and reverse decades of housing segregation.
6: I do not exaggerate when I say that the proudest moments of my presidency have been times such as this, when I have signed into law the promises of a century. I shall never forget that it is more than a hundred years ago when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But it was a proclamation, it was not a fact. Now with this bill the voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. We all know that the roots of injustice run deep. But violence cannot redress a solitary wrong. Our remedy a single unfairness. And we just must put our shoulders together and put a stop to both. The time is here. Action must
0: be now. But as Dr. Rothstein points out, by then it was too late. The damage had been done. So in
1: 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act that said, in effect, uh, okay, African Americans, you're now free to buy homes in Daly City or Levittown or any of the other suburbs in between. But it's an empty promise because those homes are no longer affordable to the families that could have afforded them when whites were buying into those suburbs and gaining the the equity and the wealth that that followed from that. They sent their children, the white families, sent their children to college with their uh, home equities. They were able to take care of their parents in old age and not depend on their children. They were able to bequeath wealth to their children. Uh, none of those advantages accrued to African-Americans who, for the most part, were prohibited from uh, buying homes in those suburbs.
0: Not only did not being able to buy a home mean African-Americans didn't accrue wealth and then use their home equity to send their kids to fancy colleges and put aside retirement funds and all those things, But since public schools in America are funded by property taxes, this also meant that African Americans went to underfunded schools. And so in education, which is so important in the States for economic success and upward mobility, there's always been an enormous gap between mostly white communities and communities of color. And by the way, if you think that the housing discrimination was fixed in 1968, Just listen to this account by an African-American mother speaking in 2013.
5: I knew that I wanted to get me and my son and go. Um, I wanted a better life for him. I wanted a better environment for him. I went to a class that gives you uh, training on how to buy a home. This one right here, the gray one. Oh boy, was I happy. I was looking at my little son, we're getting ready to get out of here. And after you finished the class, you needed to contact a real estate agent. So we began to search for homes. And each time I'm like, okay, here's another list, mister. And he was like, oh, Sarah, we'll check that out later. I have some homes I want to show you. Weeks and weeks and weeks done went by. In fact, months had went by. I said, I don't understand why Uh, This guy will not take me into the suburbs. That's where I want to live. I knew that there was something wrong I said why are you treating me like this and he responded When white people see black people in their neighborhoods, they get offended
0: Since the country's founding, the American government has put in place systems to divide Black Americans and white Americans. And not just to divide the two, but to elevate one and degrade the other, to try to ensure that African Americans would be treated like second-class citizens, like outsiders in their own country. And that pain is gushing out in the protests this week.
5: No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace.
0: But There's another thing I can't stop thinking about this week. It might seem a little, I don't know, out of place. But I was listening to another podcast earlier this week, my favorite podcast actually, called This American Life. It was an episode from a few weeks back, so before the protests even began, back when George Floyd was still alive. Ira Glass was talking to a couples therapist and he's repeating a line of hers, a piece of advice that he says probably anyone who's ever been in a couple would find useful. And that is to notice that behind every criticism, there's a wish, a wish to be closer. As I watched and listened to and read about these protests all week, I kept thinking about that line, behind the criticism. The uproar, the unrest, the disgust is a wish, a wish to be closer, to treat each other better, to value each other more, to actually realize, after centuries of failing to do so, what their fathers declared at the founding of the country. We hold these truths to be self-evident
4: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
5: Okay, round two. Name something that's
2: not boring.
4: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
2: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.